This morning, I have the privilege of preaching on the topic of discipleship. We don't do a lot of topical messages in our church. This is an important topic. The reason I'm preaching on discipleship is because today we have posted a sign-up sheet for something new at our church, which is also something old at our church, uh, because we have done it in the past. Uh, We are simply calling it small group Bible studies or small groups. And small groups are intended to be about discipleship, and that's why I am preaching on it. So if you go to our little hallway there in the back, right outside of the sanctuary, you will see a sign-up sheet where you can, it's obviously optional, put down your name. We have several different time slots where you can put a check mark or an X to say, I am interested in being part of a small group Bible study, and these are the time slots that I am available in. The time slots that we will begin with are Wednesday morning at 10 a.m., um, Wednesday evening at 7 p.m., Tuesday evening at 7 p.m., and Thursday evening at 7 p.m. If you want to sign up after the message, and please hear me on this, please sign up for all of the time slots that would work for you so that if Tuesday and Thursday work for you potentially, put them both down so it will help us figure out numbers. I need to say a couple of things here at the beginning or else you're going to be distracted. Some of you will throughout the sermon about what this means or what it doesn't mean. We're still going to have our, our Bible studies that we have now. So if Wednesday night or Thursday night at High Street is after this message and considering it an effective discipleship time for you, that is perfectly fine. Much of my own discipleship over the years has relied on those times, but for many people, for a variety of reasons, those Bible studies are not as good of an option as a small group Bible study would be. Some people are not very comfortable speaking or asking questions in a classroom type environment. So they don't learn as well there because uh, they feel like they have to figure out whatever the teacher said or meant on their own. It's just outside of of, of, uh, who they naturally are. Other people are very comfortable in a classroom environment but it becomes almost entirely an intellectual exercise. They do not build relationships in a classroom environment, and I hope that we will see today how important relationships are. Other people are relatively new to their understanding of the Bible, and they need to ask lots of questions or need to explore certain things, and they can't do that in a classroom environment without hijacking the whole discussion into uh, their own own concerns. Uh, And then there's another group, which frankly, just the times of our current Bible studies don't fit their schedule. Uh, They're not available on Wednesday evening or Thursday evening. Maybe they work second shift or they work third shift and they're getting ready. In response to that last one, uh, although small groups will not start until October, probably about middle of October, beginning this week at our church, Wednesdays at 10 a.m., we will have a Bible study for anyone who is available Wednesdays during the daytime and otherwise cannot come or would just like to come to a Bible study Wednesday during the day. So this Wednesday will not be official small group Bible study, but we will have a Bible study here at the church at 10 a.m. If you can make it, please join us uh, That's an open Bible study time for the time being. All right, that's the announcement portion of the sermon, uh, which explains at least why I'm preaching on discipleship today. But what is discipleship? And why does it deserve all this attention, all this planning? What is it? Turn in your Bibles, this is going to shock some of you, to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And I know some of you are thinking, we've been turning to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, for the last two weeks, and now you come back and you make us go to the same passage that the other guy stood up there and made us turn to for the last two weeks, 
And that's right. That's pretty much exactly what I'm saying here. Uh, but we're going to look at a lot of passages today, so keep your Bibles handy. The screen is here to help you since we're looking at lots of passages today. In case you're not handy with your Bibles, I want you to follow along as best as you can. Um, so, two weeks ago, I was sitting right over there by Allison and listening to Steve, and he is preaching on the Great Commission. If you've been a Christian for a while, you're probably familiar with this text, but I'm going to read it to you again. It says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, again, you should be familiar with this. This is Jesus' command for us as Christians. He makes it clear. He is speaking with authority, so we had better listen to him. And as Steve pointed out over the last two weeks, the verse is all about doing one thing. And the one thing we're supposed to be doing is making disciples. Making disciples. That is what the church is supposed to be about. And the word disciple is not a complicated word. It means learner. And we aren't surprised at all then when Jesus explains that as learners or disciples we should be taught to keep all of his commands. We should be taught to observe everything that he has said. Now, in a nutshell, this is what the Christian church is supposed to be about, making disciples, following Jesus, being taught to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. It's what we have been commissioned to do. And as Steve was preaching, I was taking notes. I have a very active mind. Some of you probably have active minds. Some of you probably have dull minds. Don't tell me if that's you. But I have a very active mind. My mind just slips off to other things very, very quickly. And so I have to take notes. It helps me focus. So here's a picture of what I'm doing. You can't read that. You don't have to. That's all right. But I'm, I've even got, you just take my word for it, the gospel acrostic that Steve gave us written on my Bible that I use all the time. Not because I like acrostics. I do not like acrostics, but I'm supposed to submit to my elders. And Steve said, here's what we're doing. And I wrote it down and you know, it's, it's on there. But then he said something that I did really, really like. He said lots. Of, it was a good message, especially two weeks. Ago. It was a very strong, very strong message that he preached. He, he said that a disciple was someone who lived with the teacher. And if, if I, for the way I take notes, if there's a star or basically any symbol at all, that means I'm supposed to pay attention to it. Anything in my notes like that. So I put a big star by it. A disciple was someone who lived with his teacher. And that part of learning is often overlooked, that the discipleship is relational. It is relational. It has to do with relationships. Now, you guys, some of you have been listening to me preach for a long time. Too long, you might say, but for a long time. And you know my mind often goes to sports analogies, and I thought about when I learned how to play baseball. And I tried to imagine what it would be like if I told my dad I wanted to play baseball. And my dad said, well, this is, this is what you do, son. I want you to go, just go down the street here. In the middle of town, there is a library. Okay, and I want you to go to the library, and I want you to get the biggest, most thorough baseball book that you can find. And this is how we're going to do this. You're going to read this book. It's going to take you a long time. It's a big book, and you don't know anything about baseball. So this is going to take a long time to read it, okay? And you're not going to have a clue what you're reading a lot of the time. But I want you to try to read this book 
on baseball. And then once a week, you and I'll sit down and I'll, I'll give you like a good 30 or 40 minute talk on it. And I was trying to think about what kind of a baseball player, I'm not much of a baseball player anyway, but I was trying to think what kind of a baseball player would I have been if that's what the training, what the learning, what the discipleship of baseball had been about. And, and it wouldn't have been very good because you've got to do it. You've got to do it. Um, there is a community element to learning how to do most important things and some not so important things like baseball. You have to have someone to throw the ball to you. You have to have someone to throw it back to. You have to have someone to pitch to you. You have to have someone to yeah, be patient with you. And then you think, well, you know, I could find a way to simulate that all by myself. Yeah, well, let me tell you what happened. They'd start playing baseball and you'd throw it to the wrong base because no one in the community ever told you, hey, dummy, this is not the time to throw it to that base. I mean, we, you learn how to do these things in community. And if we as Christians ignore the obvious and persistent call of Scripture to learn, to observe all of Jesus' instructions in the community of God's people, then, we look, we might be pretty good at one or two things. You know, if you decide I'm going to learn baseball all by myself, you could, you could put a target outside and go throw at it, you know, and you might get pretty good at that. But that's not baseball. You, and I think a lot of Christians, they, they might get good at They might really have some levels of expertise. Yeah, I really know that part well. But that's not the fullness of Christianity. And we need to ask ourselves, what is God's purpose in our lives? Now, you could turn here, but I'll put it up on the screen for you. What is God's purpose? Romans 8.29 says this. God has chosen us for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That is the choosing of God. God has chosen us to be conformed to the image of his son. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but that is a high calling. God has chosen us to be conformed. That's, like, that's not like saying, I want to play baseball. That's like saying, I'm going to play baseball, and I feel called to be the very best baseball player who has ever walked the face of God's planet. I mean, that's like, I want to be Babe Ruth. I want to be Hank Aaron. This is who I am called to be, the very best of the best. And I'm thinking through this, and I'm thinking, what a calling this is. This can't possibly be God's purpose for all of us. But it is. Here's another passage. This is from Ephesians 4. This is talking about God's plan for us to grow to maturity in the church, by the way. And it says we're going to grow until we all come to unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. <sighs> I have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. This is our calling. Now, so our God, our God who saved us, who sent His only begotten Son into the world to live as a man, to live a sinless life, to suffer for you, to die on the cross for you, to pay the price of your sin for you, in order to adopt you into his family and give you new life. Our God is calling us to something. And this something that he's calling us to is to learn how to become like Jesus. That is relational. Think about when Jesus called the 12 disciples. You probably know some of these stories, or at least the basics of them. He didn't walk up and say to Peter, you know, here's Peter and he's fishing and he's, uh, you know, he's beside the Sea of Galilee and he's, you know, I don't know, working on his, whatever fishermen did back then. He's doing fishing stuff. And Jesus walks up and he says, come and follow me. And Peter's like, okay. 
And Jesus is like, okay, now this is what I mean by that. Here's this book. Okay, here's a book. And I want you to take this, and, and I want you to read this, Peter, and then we're going to meet right here by the sea. We'll just do it, let's say, once every seven days. And, and I'll give you a little talk about it, and then you're good to go for the kingdom of heaven. Like, you're pretty much there at that point. I mean, it might take you a few of those seven-day periods of time, but, but that's pretty much it. You just, you just, you know, I'll give you a little talk. You read, of course, pray, pray, but, but that's going to, that's it, Peter. Just do that. That's not what, that's not how Jesus called Peter. He called Peter into a relationship with himself. Uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they understood that following Jesus meant this fishing stuff is going to get set aside. Matthew knew when Jesus called him that his days of, of doing the Roman bidding, that was, that was done. This was finished because they, were gonna, they understood what a disciple was in the vernacular of the, of the day. It wasn't somebody who sat in a classroom or who heard a talk. It was somebody who joined a teacher who lived a life in relationship with other people. And they got up and they had to follow Jesus. They anticipated that following Jesus would require the kind of learning that meant a close personal relationship. What they may not have known at the time. Think about this. What they may not have known is that Jesus was calling them into a relationship with each other as well. And I want to make this point to you. I could go to any number of the uh, letters of the apostles in the New Testament. I'm just going to go to 1 John. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go to John, uh, chapter 17, verse 20. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. This is at the end of his ministry. And as he's praying for his disciples, he pivots and he begins to pray for all of us. He prays, I do not pray, speaking to God the Father, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, brothers and sisters, that's all of us, okay? We haven't heard from Jesus directly. We have heard from the apostles who were given us the scriptures and who these things of the faith have been entrusted to. So he's praying here for us. And this is what he says. I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You think, okay, that could mean a lot of things. But notice what he's saying here that they may be one with the same kind of fellowship that you and I share. What kind of fellowship does God the Father have with God the Son? Pretty daggum close, right? I mean, that's, that's unity at unity's core, right? And you say, okay, well, maybe I see it. Well, let's keep going. You know it's important if Jesus begins to repeat himself, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And we keep going. And the glory with which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you and me. You're picking up on the theme now. And finally, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So not only is Jesus calling us into a relationship with him, but he says, this is his prayer. These are his words. The apostles understood this. That relationship with him meant relationship with his other disciples. And, and what's even more compelling is do you see in this text here how he ties sharing the gospel, evangelism, seeing unbelieving people come to a saving relationship with God. He ties that to this oneness, this evangelistic effort of the church 
to see people saved depends upon this. Do you see that? They need to be made one so that the world may know that you have sent me. So Christianity is not some Eastern mystical religion where our spiritual life blossoms, as it were, secluded in the back room of our house where we've lit all of our seance candles and we've laid out our meditation mat and we've erected our little statue of whatever and now we're going to sit there with some inner peace going, home, home. Oh, I'm finding God. I'm looking for God within myself. I'm not trying to mock quiet time with the Lord or prayerful time with the Lord. I mean, I hope it goes without saying that that's important. But if we think that we can privately do on our own, by ourselves, what God has designed to be accomplished in Christian community, we are kidding ourselves. We're kidding ourselves. We cannot be disciples of Jesus on our own little islands. The whole concept of that is foreign to the Bible and foreign to God. Now, this is the message of the, of the apostles. And again, this is pretty unified throughout the New Testament, but I think this is a compelling passage. 1 John chapter 1. You could turn there if you'd like. If turning is difficult, it's on the screen. Here's what John said about this. John knew what, what Jesus' plan was for his church, and here's how John describes this. He says, This is the message which we have heard from him, and declare to you. We've heard this from Jesus. John's an apostle. He's being sent from Jesus. This is the message. We've heard it from Jesus. We declare it to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, lest you just read that carefully and say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that kind of thing before. Steve read something similar at the beginning. of Yeah, yeah, I've heard this. Lest you do that, you need to see what John has just done there because John knows what he's doing when he says this. Now, he says something very simple. If we say that we have fellowship with God, a relationship with God, and walk in darkness, live evil lives, we are lying. Why? Because we've read, God is in the light, God is righteous, God is good. If we say, yeah, I have relationship with God, and live our lives in a sinful, evil way, John, and again, this is John the beloved. This is John the kind old man. He looks at these people and says, we're liars. We're liars. That's, you can't say, I have fellowship with God who is in the light while I walk in darkness. Now you say, that's a pretty easy concept. I understand. I don't see anything clever there. But look at the next part. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, and here, what would you expect him to say? With God. Because he just said, if we say we have fellowship with God and we walk in darkness, we're liars. We don't have fellowship with Him. But if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God. But that's not what John says. Because John understands what he's talking about. He understood what Jesus was doing, gathering disciples together for three years of the earthly ministry. He understood Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of John. And so he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. God, God requires us to have fellowship with his people. 
And if we say, well, yeah, I have fellowship with God, and we have no fellowship with His people, we don't know what we're talking about. Which begs the question, what kind of relationship are we supposed to have with God? What is God supposed to be to us? And when you ask this question, you get many different ideas. Some of you may have thought through this, right? It's not uncommon to hear people say they want a relationship with God. And some people imagine that their relationship with God will be like the genie in the movie. And he will pop out to help them whenever they call upon him, right? And there's, a, there's some idea of biblical truth to that, right? That's where they get this. And, you know, he's there kind of in their back pocket so that, you know, when they get cancer, just rub the lamp. Or when they're, they're drowning like Aladdin, they just pull them out. You know, you've seen the movie. I know you've seen the movie. I'm not on my own with this, right? Uh, you know, and they think this is what my relationship, I want a relationship with God. And what they mean is this is what I would like to happen. I want a relationship with an all-powerful genie who can just rescue me from all of my calamities and make my life prosperous and wealthy. Maybe I'll be a prince. Maybe I'll ride on an elephant. I don't know, whatever it may be. This is how they envision their relationship with God. Other people, they imagine God as if he is their, their close, personal, best friend, like an imaginary friend, almost. And they talk about God like he's an imaginary friend. They speak of God. I don't know if you ever heard somebody say this, but, oh, don't worry about me. God and I have an agreement. We have an arrangement. And I'm thinking, what is it? And they won't tell me because it's private. It's between them and God. You know, they've imagined up a relationship with God that surely is not there, but they've conjured into existence to help them sleep at night, to make them feel better so they don't have to listen to other people who talk about objective truth from God's word. And, oh, don't worry about me, God is their, is their imaginary friend. And other people, God is like this great bearded grandfatherly figure, like a Santa Claus type figure, right? And he embraces them with big hugs whenever they're struggling. You know, and whenever they need advice, you know, he's always there to give some sage advice. You know, some people only go to church because, yeah, it'll be good advice. It'll be, it'll be something good like that. Brothers and sisters, these are not the pictures of God that are presented to us in the Bible. What does God say that he longs to be to us? God says that he is a father, a father. And a father has a family. And being adopted by God into his family means joining a group of people he calls his children. And if anyone says they know him but does not love his family, they are lying. That is the message of 1 John. They don't know him. They don't have fellowship with him apart from his family because he is a father. The apostles knew who God was. They knew from Jesus' teaching they knew that Christians, they knew what a Christian disciple was. They knew that they had to live their lives together as God's children. This was their message. And this has always been observed generationally for thousands of years in the Christian church, by the way. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you can't get much more back to the beginning than Acts chapter 2 of the Christian church. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm not going to read the whole passage to you. It's a fairly simple passage. It's not complicated at all. I'm just going to summarize it. It describes the very first Christian people when thousands got saved in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Here's a summary of what they looked like. Now listen to this. It says, they gathered regularly under the apostles' teachings. They continued in the apostles' teachings, so they were learning. That's what it says. 
It says they were together. In the very next verse, 44, it says they were together. It says that they were sharing what they owned based on whoever needed something. And it says that they were meeting in each other's homes. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds an awful lot like a family. This is how a family is meant to operate. They are together together. They see the world the same and they're coming together to see the world the same. They're being taught by the same father. They're sharing based on who has need and they're part of each other's lives. They're in each other's homes. This sounds a lot like a family. Now, someone will surely say, what about the Sunday service? I mean, am I wasting my time here? Well, next week we're going to look at worship. And I was about 30 seconds uh, from pivoting totally away from this and not turning any slides on, and saying, no, 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 we're going right to worship this morning, because I am conflicted that we are not worshiping well, okay? And that's a a conflict from seeing what I see, okay? So next week, we're going to talk about worship. Uh, I'm not pivoting. Uh, You know, it was close. It was really close. It was almost, I don't need nothing. I'm just going to go up there, and I'm going to preach about worship. But we're not going to do that. That will be next week. Uh, But it's a sad reality when people think of the church that they often merely think of the weekly worship service on the Lord's Day. Now, the whole church gathering together on the Lord's Day is a biblical thing. It is a good thing. There are specific things that we're told in the Bible are supposed to happen during a church service. I'm going to summarize them for, for you here. And yes, some of you may chuckle at this. There's supposed to be greeting and hospitality without partiality. I'll come back to that in a second. I have done long rants on why the Bible says, in seven different places, by the way, that we should be greeting people with a holy kiss. Not going to institute that this morning, okay? Uh, not going to start, you know, Marty, uh, Marty Tim's often greeting people back there. Brothers, this is on YouTube. You know, you guys just uh, put in some breath mints and... Uh, But what is this all about? What is this holy kissing thing on about? And we can argue culture to culture. Yes, I get it. But the idea is when people come into a church service, they're supposed to be met with a hospitality that the rest of the world does not regularly extend to them. It's supposed to be like a family. Truthfully, I don't kiss very many people, okay? And I don't blame you if you just try to run, if I try to kiss you, right? But the people that I kiss are people in my family, And by the way, this hospitality, this greeting, is supposed to be without partiality. It's not just the people that we get along well with. No, it's not just the people who have a lot in common. We're supposed to be hospitable and greeting to all people. Why? Because they've earned it? No. Because we have a father, and these are his children. (laughs) That's why. All right? What else is supposed to be happening? Well, they're supposed to be... Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, prayer, the sacraments, we observe the Lord's Supper, we baptize, all of these things take place in the full gathering of God's people. You know, Jesus, I don't know if you know this, but he sang with his disciples. He did. Biblical record of this. When Jesus sang with his disciples, I don't have any evidence of this, so you can throw this out the window if you want, but I don't think that he would have been okay with like Peter leaning up against the side wall, just kind of mumbling to himself. That doesn't seem to be the relationship Jesus had with Peter. I think Jesus would have looked straight at Peter and said, hey, buddy, when we sing, we're going to sing. And I, I mean, and I don't think Peter had a problem with it, just to be clear. But they sang. They sang. Why? Because they had these beautiful voices. It was like listening to a men's choir. 
I don't think so. I don't think so. And by, I'm singing up there in choir. It ain't like listening to, to the angels in heaven. That's for sure, okay? Uh, I get it, all right? They sang. Why? Because they're glorifying God. Because it's not about them and how they look and how they sound or even how they feel. They're coming before God. And so they're going to sing. They're going to glorify God in accordance with his word. Casey uh, encouraged us with his scripture reading this morning there. But more than that, and perhaps some of you will appreciate this, we have an awful lot about what the teaching is supposed to be like in the, in the church when we gather together on the Lord's Day. And, you know, some of you, I've got great news for you. Did you know 1 Corinthians 14? It limits how, much of the ser- how long the sermon's supposed to go on. Did you know that? And you're probably thinking, whew, I have been waiting for that passage to be taught faithfully for a long time, you know? But it does. It says it can't go on for and ever and ever. Now, the bad news is it says at most two or three people should speak. So when I'm done, we'll give Steve about 45 minutes, and then if Justin has something he wants to come up and go on, then you guys can get out of here. But it does. It provides order, and it says, look, you guys have these church... Paul's telling the Corinthians, you have these church services, two or three people speak at most, and everybody else needs to sit down and be quiet and listen, Right? Now, folks, the concept of a church service on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, is not strange to the Bible, but there is no way that a church service in and of itself can be the fullness of Christian discipleship. It cannot be that. It was never intended to be that. It is a time of gathered worship before God, but it cannot be the whole thing. It cannot be. A Sunday service should be meaningful, and here's the key, for the spiritual person. It is an essential part of discipleship. It's not a sideshow. It's essential for Christian discipleship. But the public assembly of the church on Sunday was not and is not designed to be the fullness of Christian discipleship. Remember, this is relational. There is no way around that. Unless you find yourself sitting there trying to figure it out, you should not be trying to figure out a way around that. It is designed to be relational for your good for the good of the body of Christ. And you know what happens? Now, this is what I have observed. You can judge whether or not it's reasonable. When we retreat from Christian discipleship, when we retreat from it, when we neglect discipleship with Jesus and our fellowship with believers in the Word of God, we inevitably struggle spiritually. And that spiritual neglect gives our human nature, our sinful flesh, the old man and the old woman that we're supposed to have crucified with its lusts and desires, it gives that old sinner new life. And we become hard-hearted and insensitive to the things of God so that when we do gather together on the Lord's Day, we are not prepared to meet with God. And we worship poorly if we worship at all because we've neglected our discipleship with God throughout the week, imagining that we could get everything we need to be the fullness of the image of Jesus Christ from a 30-minute talk or a 40-minute talk. I know, maybe longer than that sometimes. Once every seven days. That's absurd. That's absurd. I want you to be face-to-face with the absurdity of that. Now, I could say a lot more. I won't because I've already mentioned how long sermons should be several times. But instead, I want to give you some examples this morning. Some things to think about, just a few in closing here. We're almost done. It'll be one of the shortest sermons I've ever preached, okay? But a few things about discipleship to consider, all right? Here are examples 
of what we learn through good Christian discipleship with God's people that we cannot learn in a Sunday service. Okay, number one, discipleship is essential because it teaches us how to forgive. Now, Jesus could have given a book to his disciples about forgiveness, and in fact, you could argue he has, or about anger or bitterness or reconciling with other people, but he did not give them a book. He spent time with them. And he taught them. And he reasoned with them by way of parables. And when he saw his disciples, I mean, how many times the Gospels do you read and they were walking along and Jesus heard part of their conversation and he jumps in. He spent time and he reasoned with them. He dealt with their heart and he did this over the course of years. And when it came time, he told them, if you do not forgive your brother, then you will not have forgiveness from God. Like, that's not something you can learn just by reading it. You have to experience that. You cannot learn to reconcile by hearing about it from a sermon. It must be accompanied by the doing, by the doing, like baseball, like football, like whatever else. You have to do it. You can't just get it from reading a book. You may avoid conflicts with brothers and sisters in Christ by withdrawing from discipleship, but that's not God's will for your life. That ain't it. God's will is for you to love and serve and support the Christian family that belongs to Him. And when you are sinned against by them, which you inevitably will be, to forgive them as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Discipleship is essential because it teaches us how to do family. Do you realize how little the Bible says directly to how to be a mother or a father or a grandfather or a grandmother? Do you realize how little it says directly to that relationship? There is no way you can possibly figure out how to be the man or the woman of God that you're supposed to be in your family apart from Christian discipleship, from learning relationally with other believers. You can't get that by sitting in a pew. You have to know other Christian people who love you, who will listen to you, who will pray for you, and who will keep watch over your soul who will look into God's word with you and help you bear the burdens, mourn the sorrows, celebrate the joys of family. There's a whole portion of the scripture where it talks about older men teaching younger men and older women working with younger women. What what does he go on about that? I thought, can't we just read the Bible, get all the instructions and be good? No, no, because the Bible gives us the wisdom of God thoroughly and completely, but it must be applied. And how are we going to apply it? unless we're in discipleship, this learning relationship with God and His people. It's not going to happen on a Sunday morning. It takes regular Christian fellowship and discipleship. It teaches us about envy and covetousness. How are you going to learn to deal with the inward sins of the heart that we express towards other people if we have no Christian family? regularly a part of our lives to challenge us when those things inevitably begin to spill out of us? Brothers and sisters, I still have to wrestle with all of these things. Envy, lust, covetousness. I pray through these things. I'm putting Bible verses in front of my face. I'm speaking with brothers and sisters in Christ about them. How are we supposed to deal with these things, right? Look, if reading in the scripture where it says, Thou shalt not do this. If that were enough 
to affect the kind of transformation in our lives, to conform us to the image of Jesus, then why do we need Jesus on the cross in the first place? If the command were enough to bring about the change, then why is the Lord Jesus going to the cross and why are we being filled with His Spirit and why are we being made disciples? Just read it and do it. Piece of cake, right? But those of us who have been Christians for a long time know that it's not that simple. Paul knows it's not that simple. That which I wish not to do is that which I find myself doing. I mean, he speaks to it, doesn't he? There are a litany of Christian, of Christian difficulties that we have dealing with inward sin. How are we going to deal with those things on an island by ourselves? We're half the time. We don't even realize we're being carried away in them until it's too late. We've already done some sort of damage to our relationships and the people around us. You know what? It is a good Christian friend who looks to his brother or sister and says, man, I got to tell you, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> what you just said there doesn't sound right. You got to be careful. That is a faithful friend. Finally, most importantly, discipleship teaches us how to love. Now, this is where we're going to close this, all right? But don't, I, we're not closing now, so you still got to pay attention. To understand the love of Jesus, we must learn to love those who we are not attracted to naturally. We have to learn to love those, and you guys know who these people are in your life. It'll be different from person to person. Whose personalities clash with ours whose ideologies, whose way of seeing the practical things of life are not the way we see things in this life. Who approach life in a seemingly different way. We have to learn to love those who offend us. We have to learn to love those who we do not find interesting. People who just in our sinful flesh, this is boring. <laughs> this, is not, this conversation is not my cup of tea. Oh, yeah? You want to keep talking about the comic books? Okay, yeah, yes. Really interesting. So then they get like a, a ring or something? Or, I mean, like, you know what I'm talking about. We have to learn to love people that we're not walking up to and starting a great friendship with on our own. We have to learn to love those who are limited in their own ability to love us back. You cannot get that from a Sunday sermon. This is my best shot at it. It's, it's not going to work in and of itself. You have to experience that in Christian fellowship and discipleship. Now, there are lots of things I could say about this, all right? But I want to I wanna, I wanna bring you to a, a passage here. Um, 1 John 4, 8 through 11. You can turn there if you'd like. If not, I'll, I'll put it up here if it's going to take you a while. But again, John is so clever in his writing about these things. We're going to close here. I know, it's getting a little warm, a little hot, getting a little long. Focus, focus. Here's John. He who does not love does not know God. Again, I love it when people think of John as this sweet old guy because he says some bold things. <laughs> I guess when you're old, you can do that, you know. <laughs> uh, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's pretty simple, Right? God is love. Our oneness with God should produce love in our lives. Not a complicated idea. In this is the love of God. In this is the, lo the love of God was manifested toward us. 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. All right, this is the gospel. We know this. There's nothing new here. God has shown his love by sending Jesus to save us, to give us eternal life. All right. In this is love. And I almost get the feeling as you read this that John has dealt with people who would describe Christian love in very different terms from how it should be understood. Because he continues to say, no, 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 no. This is love. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay. Now what John is saying is that our idea of what it means to love may not be what God means when He speaks of love. Because when God speaks of love, He speaks of a kind of love that is extended towards others who do not love Him back, who are not living the right way, who have not earned any of it, and frankly, in the flesh, who we have little expectation will live up to it. This is love. Okay? Which brings John to his conclusion. Beloved, if God loved us, and again, what would you expect the verse to say? If God loved us, then we must love God. That would make sense. There's perfect symmetry to that, right? That's very simple. That's what we would expect it to say. But again, that is not what John learned from Jesus. If God has so loved us, and you can make that determination on your own. But if you believe the gospel, that God has loved you this way, then we also ought to love one another. This is what it means to bear the image of Jesus Christ. This is what it means. This is why Jesus says the fullness of the law can be summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's talking about. This kind of love transforms a person's life. This kind of love makes someone like Jesus. There's Paul, and he writes this eloquent thing, and you know what it is in 1 Corinthians 13. But you know, he's writing that in response to people with a very wrong idea about what they want from God and about what church should look like. And he says, look, I'm going to show you a better way than speaking in tongues and performing miracles and healing people. I'm going to show you a better way. And it's so poetic, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am like a sounding brass. You want to have a good experiment. You know, you really want to bring this passage to life. What you do is you go to a thrift store and you get a horned instrument, okay? Something big, right? You get a horned instrument. And tomorrow, when you get up out of bed, whenever that is, you just wake up, reach beside your bed, and decide that you're going to share that kind of love with everyone in the house. Just reach down, whatever time it is, and go... I mean, just let it fly and see if they take from that, boy, I feel loved this morning. You know, what a powerful sign. of the, see, see if that happens. That's what he's saying here. Or a clanging cymbal. Same thing would work. Just grab, you know, the cymbal always seemed like the oddball with the triangle and the cowbell in the orchestra. I'm not sure what skill. I'm sure there is skill, but I don't know what skill is involved with going... Bang! You know, together like that. But that's what he's saying. It's worthless noise. It's worthless noise. That's what he's saying about someone's Christian faith. 
apart from love, about their faith. I am nothing. (laughs) I talk to people regularly, and it's a great blessing to do so. And they talk about how they're dealing with sin, and I just can't be free from this. I can't make myself do the right thing. And I understand. I understand. And inevitably, I get the conversation as best I can to, are you are you a spiritually healthy person? What does your discipleship with God actually look like? What does that look like? Because a lot of people, they become a Christian, and then they try to fight sin as if they weren't a Christian. They become a Christian. I place my faith in Jesus Christ, right? Now I'm going to fight sin. Well, how are you going to do it? I'm going to try really hard not to do bad things. And then they're surprised when that doesn't work. Our ability to conquer the flesh comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't come from you. If it came from you, you would not need the cross. It comes from God. And if you think, well, I'm going to fight sin in my life and I'm going to become a renewed person, but I'm not going to do what the Holy Spirit wants me to do here, 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 and here, but I'll do this much of what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. Like, you cannot partition your life off like that because you're not dealing with a mystical force. You're dealing with a person. You're dealing with God. If you don't have a fullness of a relationship, a healthy relationship, life with God, if you're not obeying His Spirit, if you're not filled with His Spirit, you're fighting sin with like both hands tied behind your back, just like a lost person. Brothers and sisters, if you could do that as a lost person, you don't need the gospel. The gospel says you cannot, that God must do it. And if God must do it, We must be what He has called us to be, and we must be it the way He has called us to be it. That might take humility. That might take difficulty. It's not easy to tell someone when you're suffering. It's not easy to tell someone. It's not easy to forgive. It's not easy to deal with inner sin. It's not easy to deal with outward sin. And and daggone it, if it isn't hard to be faithful, to God's people when there are so many other things in the world that want to get their claws into us. It's hard. It's hard. I understand. In the flesh, I understand. But do you want to live up to what God has called you to or not? You've got to wrestle with that. He has called you to something great, something powerful, and something real. It's not imaginary. It's real. We have to become disciples of Jesus. All right, let's pray. Father, now I I pray for your people here. I pray that we will honor you with our lives, that we will step down from our pride, which imagines our own way of following you, and truly seek you out, what your word has said if I've said anything wrong here if I've said anything inappropriate if I've messed something up Father please forgive me that that would be a terrible thing make whatever correction needs to be made quickly by the power of your Holy Spirit in people's hearts but you know by sincerity of heart I've tried to be honest I present this to you as an offering take this offering and Father please use it for your blessing and purpose. And I don't mean anything about the money that we put in plates. Take this offering of worship to you that we presented this morning. 
this time in your word and use this for your kingdom's sake in the lives of your people. Father, please do this. I feel so ineffective to do that. That's not my job. I know, yet with all my heart I want to, but you, Father, can work in people's lives. You are powerful. You are almighty. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for what you've blessed us with in Christ. Help us to commit ourselves to him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.